0: all right uh welcome everybody to our three-week series on liberation um i'm really really excited about this uh taylor and i have been talking about this for a uh, few months now but we got together this week to really kind of flesh this out i'm going to hand it over to him in a second um i just want to give a shout out the the, the book we're going to be using just for today is a book called um thinking about god it's Introduction to Theology, kind of a book, by a scholar, a theologian named Dorothy Soleil, a German woman, um, who taught at Union Seminary for a while, or U- Union Theological, what is it? Union Theological yeah.
1: Seminary, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but, you know, you read a lot of Introduction to Theology things, and the one thing you really don't encounter in that is the radical paradigm. And, and really that is the centerpiece of this book for her, so... Um, I, I don't think it's too like too over the head for the layperson. I think any of you, if you just kind of intentionally spend some time with it, would be able to comprehend it just fine. Um, you know, whereas like if it was Paul Tillich, I would say go to go to seminary first. Um, but I would highly recommend this book. We're uh, we're going to be spending time talking about just a few chapters, which is kind of the culmination of which is your handout. Uh, but you can. I don't know if you can get this. At, I mean, you can't get this at the book lock, but you can order it there. Um, but I would highly recommend actually getting this book and just going through it in your own time, too, because it's powerful stuff. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Taylor now, and then uh, and then we're going to go through our, our handout and make a little bit more sense about it. Cool.
1: Um, I'm going to do this. It's okay. Yeah. Um, it just feels awesome. Um, so Liberation, We uh, we met up earlier this week solving grew and kind of started talking about ideas on, well, it was two weeks ago maybe, um, about the ideas that maybe we missed in our, in other places, because um, a lot of us are coming out of uh, different experiences. And so, um, so liberation, I'm going to explain a little bit of liberation. I thought actually um, Simone de Beauvoir has this uh, little excerpt from her book, The Second Sex, which is... Um, second-wave feminism. Um, She's French. It's from 1949. I'll just read this. She compares the situation between women and black people in 1949. Um, Just jump in. There are deep similarities between the situation of woman and that of a Negro. Both are being emancipated, liberated, today from a like paternalism, and their former master class wishes to keep them in their place, that is, the place chosen for them. In both cases, the former masters lavish more or less sincere eulogies, either on the virtues of the, quote, good Negro, with his dormant, childish, merry soul, the submissive Negro, or on the merits of the woman who is, quote, truly feminine, that is, frivolous, infantile, irresponsible, the submissive one. In both cases, the dominant class bases its argument on a state of affairs that it has itself created. As George Bernard Shaw puts it in substance, the American white relegates the black to the rank of shine boy, and he condones from this that the black is good for nothing but shining shoes. This vicious circle is met with, met with in all analogous circumstances when an individual or a group of individuals is kept in a situation of inferiority the fact is that he is inferior, but the significance of the verb to be must be rightly understood here. It is in bad faith to give it a static value when it really has the dynamic Hegelian sense of to have become. Yes, and this is Du Boisbar speaking in 1949. Yes, women on the whole are today inferior to men. That is, their situation affords them fewer possibilities. The question is, should that state of affairs continue. So this kind of opened up a little bit new dynamic for me um, in trying to understand what liberation is. And so in this context that she's comparing the black person with the woman, she's saying that we, we need more opportunities, give us more opportunities. We want to get rid of this, um, this class of Gustavo Gutierrez. Has anybody ever heard of Gustavo Gutierrez? Anybody besides Chris? Totally cool. So he's a Peruvian Catholic priest. And in 19, I think it's 1968, he was asked to, because at the time South America, was, they were um, a lot of European. So Gustavo Gutierrez was one of those priests that was asked to give this theology of development. He had studied, I think, in Belgium and a couple of the places. And um, so Gustavo Gutierrez showed up to this conference, and he said, I was asked to speak about theology of development. I'm going to speak about a theology of liberation. It was essentially like, we are the hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, prisoner. same way that Simon de Beauvoir said, you know, you keep putting us in this shoe shine position. We want an opportunity to grow. And um, so that's that was kind of the beginning of liberation theology was the Peruvian priest Gustavo Gutiérrez saying too, in this Catholic conference, saying we don't want this is not a theology of development, this is a theology of liberation. And right before him there was another priest who had kind of joined uh, this like guerrilla fighters and alive today, he would be a genijero, a freedom fighter. And so this priest, Camilo Torres, he joined the indigenous struggle against the European colonizing forces. Um, So that's where um, liberation theology came from, Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, Right about the same time, there was an African-American theologian named James Cone, who who initiated a black theology of liberation, and it was based on Martin King and Malcolm X and understanding the black context. His last book he wrote is called um, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He just wrote this. This is like nine years ago, I think it came out, maybe. Um, but The Cross and the Lynching Tree, so he said that when I saw an African American person being lynched, I saw Jesus on the cross. And so this, this, this uh, it's a theology of And right alongside them was Dorothy Soleil. And uh, if you look online, you type in Dorothy Soleil pictures, there's a picture of the three of them actually at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And a couple other white guys, you know, <laughs> whatever. But, um, uh, and she actually, teaching at Union, she um, taught alongside James Come for a long time. So in this book, um, right in the very beginning, the first person she thanks is James Come. She says, like, person who helped me understand this. She's German, she was born in 1929, which if you know German context, 1933, there was a big event that happened. Hitler came to power in 1939, was kind of the big World War II kind of moment, and ended in 1945 when she was 16 years old. So she came um, of age during World War II, during the Nazis, kind of also in the aftermath of that, trying to understand. And uh, so as a friend. your theology with someone from the holocaust is probably not that great <laughs> and ever since i heard that i was like oh my gosh that blows my mind because also the context i came from it was always kind of emphasizing well you know god god shows up in the little things i was driving and i, I got a parking spot I'm like, thank you god for this parking spot and and then i'm kind of like i was playing soccer with all these immigrants And that was not allowed in, in my context, or it was just kind of like, ah, oh, you know, we're not we don't want to talk about it. we don't want to talk about that. like, so like so, God is like giving people parking spaces, but, um, but He's not showing up to things like the Holocaust. You know, like where, where was He in that moment? Um, and so she she says um, a bunch of times things like. Um, So she came. She came from from that experience, um, and uh, it was in I think the early '70s, not long after the Gustavo Gutierrez and uh, James Cone stuff started coming out, that she um, wrote, uh, started writing. Anyways, this book is actually. This kind of a frame, um, and, uh, and so I found it, um, and uh, I think it's great. Anyways, um, I would like to distinguish in a paradigmatic way three different forms of theology which seem to be relevant today. This division has its problems because there are always overlaps, connections, cross fertilizations everywhere, and established schools in no way determine the field. Nevertheless, it seems to me to be useful. I know the three basic, uh, present basic frameworks of orthodox, liber- liberal, and radical theology, and understand them as three houses built in different periods of faith. I would like to invite you to enter them and look around. Which is what do.
0: Um, so now we're gonna be going through the handout and get into like the nitty gritties of this. Um, One thing I want to say before we get into that is that this is going to be challenging for most of us. Um, And it should be. So if you feel yourself starting um, to feel challenged by this, that's okay. I want you, what I'm asking for you to do is to be open to it. Try not to immediately critique it, shut it down, push it away, justify your feelings. Just be open to if you're feeling challenged by this. Um, My, actually, our expectation was that a lot of us come from this, what Dorothy Soleil would say is a liberal framework, and we tend to think that that's like the end all be all uh, framework. And what she's presenting to us is something that evolves from that, something that really has only been experienced by oppressed communities and has been theologized by oppressed communities too. So it is it is it is wholly outside of our experiences if we're coming from a white, liberal place, which many of us are. Um, and so I—yeah?
2: Can I—I I just want to, like, interrupt just before we move on. So. I get the quote that you uh, wanted to share from Simone de. Oh yeah. Uh, um but.
0: We assume that we're already have intersectionality in the back of our mind and it's not said out loud. So, like that quote being from 1949 was a very novel concept, and of course, as that's been fleshed out over time, um, that intersectionality, the idea that people can hold uh, intersecting identities. So, you know, white women experience oppression as women and then see that similarity with like a black woman, but don't understand the intersection of that woman's femininity, but also her blackness, and try to make that comparison. So I know that's not what Taylor meant, but it's good to say that out loud, because that's not, that is definitely not what's being said here. I, my hope is that all of those intersections are included in this paradigm, that it's not just for one group or the other, but as you'll see, um, the radical liberation paradigm is really meant to include all of those intersections. And like for me as a white, straight male, I have no experience in any of that and i to present the material. Um, but for anyone coming from a place of either a, a person of color, a woman, a person in the LGBTQ community, I have a lot more experiences with what I'm saying than, than those of us who aren't. So uh, thank you very much for saying that out loud anything else? okay um, First thing I want to point you at is the timeline or the spectrum at the top. you all see that right here. Um, and so what Dorothy Soleil is doing is presenting three paradigms of kind of evolution um, and so the spectrum at the top is to kind of, is, is really the lens in which um, Christianity comes through. Right? So on the far left with the orthodox conservative paradigm, you see that it's it's through the lens of a historically powerful group of people. They understand God through a historically powerful lens. They understand God as the powerful institutional church, not the oppressed person, right? And then as you see in the liberal paradigm right there in the center, I labeled it as historically complicit rather than historically neutral because it, historically neutral says that you just simply didn't know or something like that and that's just not the truth. And then of course on the right side of the spectrum is historically pre- oppressed. You see this paradigm comes through the lens of oppressed people, be it people of color, indigenous people, women, LGBTQ people, um, et cetera. Make sense? So I just want I want to point that out first and then go through these three paradigms. And um, what you need to understand about these three paradigms as we're going through it, is each column, each paradigm, is is in a sense a liberating critique of what comes before it, but then the next one is also a critique of its own shortfalls. And so Dorothy Soleil talks about how the liberal paradigm was good, it was necessary, it was one of the things that gave her her theology that led her to this radical paradigm. Um, So she's not bashing any one of these holy, she's really trying to describe their evolution, but she's also trying to describe this radical paradigm that a lot of people are not aware of, um, unless they're coming from communities of color. And I, I think one of my favorite examples is every year Martin Luther King Day, everybody celebrates Martin Luther King, everybody. But if everybody understood how much Martin Luther King comes from this radical paradigm, he would probably be viewed in the way he was in the time he was alive, right? 25% approval, uh, uh, and even though he was a nonviolent resistor, still assassinated. Um, And so, so, one, this is kind of for us, who I imagine most of us exist within this center framework, to really look critically at ourselves. Um, and hopefully see what I would call a more authentic Christianity in this radical paradigm. And, and you might be asking, why is the radical paradigm the most authentic Christian paradigm? This goes back to the timeline I, timeline I did, which not all of us were here for, but there's, you know, this first 300 years of Christianity when this radical paradigm was Christianity. In the time of Jesus and 300 years after, this paradigm was Christianity. And then it's, Constantine comes in, Uh, Theodophius comes in and completely changes it to a a different paradigm altogether. And and a lot of that's lost. So that's kind of my introduction as we go on. Um, So starting with the orthodox conservative paradigm, one thing I would like for you to imagine is actually a first column over here that I'm going to call medieval Christianity. And, And we've talked about that a little bit. And so medieval Christianity, the hallmarks of medieval Christianity uh, was authority. Christianity was fed through the lens of authority. It was fed through the lens of the pope and whoever the emperor was at that time. Um, So it was very authoritative. It was not dogmatic. It was not traditional. It did not incorporate uh, a a reading of scripture by lay people. It was entirely through the lens of authority and fed to people. And so you have to imagine this first orthodox conservative paradigm comes as a critique of that medieval paradigm. And so um, what Dorothy Soleil is saying here is that the hallmark of the orthodox conservative uh, paradigm, and she's doing this through the lens of the Reformation, not through Catholicism, but through Martin Luther and the Reformation. So the first uh, uh, feature here is that it's dogmatic and it's traditional. Yeah. Don't need you so, know, to pray to the saints you yeah. can pray. I mean, he that's what he did. He took it on and it's kind of oh, he was a radical in his time. In in his time in Germany, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why she says this or, this Orthodox conservative was a critique of the medieval and it was a liberating factor from that medieval. It's it's what it, it's what enabled the liberal paradigm to come about. It's what enabled the radical paradigm. It's an evolution that happens. And each of these needs the one before it in order to evolve. So you're absolutely right, Shelly. And that's why I said each of these is not wholly negative or wholly positive. She's trying to frame the evolution of thought to push people into something new. And so so when she talks about dogma and tradition, she's talking about, one, the Bible being the authority, not the pope, not the emperor. But from the Bible being an authority, dogma. Was created. So, like a dogma of justification, a dogma of sin, a dogma of etc. And these, these dogmas become authoritative for people, for nation states, for Christianity as a whole. It's like a collection of rules that do become very authoritative, so yes. And the important part to remember is that they're based on an interpretation of Scripture. That people have access to—that's one thing Luther did. Was like, hey, here's the Bible. Everybody can read it now. But then Luther also said, you know, this is through the Book of Concord. But this is how we're interpreting this Bible that you can now read. And so those interpretations became dogma, became tradition. Um, and 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 people today still hold on very powerfully to that those dogmas and those traditions. Um, one of the ways they were able to make sure that dogma and tradition was so authoritative was by, by the claim that scripture is uh, the revelation of God. That, and so what we've talked about here is historical criticism. This does not include historical criticism. This says that God completely inspired the Holy Bible, and essentially it's infallible. Even though people have access to it, you're still saying this is infallible. What they're really saying is our interpretation of it is infallible. It seems to me also that
3: there was a communal aspect of Catholicism where you went to confession, you were part of that community, and what was taken away was it became like, I don't need that because God can talk to me directly through revealed truth in the scripture. In a sense, we'll get to that in the liberal one, but again, you know, most of the world's
0: illiterate at this time, and so they're still depending on the dogma and the tradition to kind of give them what that, that essence is. Um, so somewhat of the communal stays there. I mean, Germans are very proud of the Reformation and being Lutherans still today. Um, a lot I mean, of the orthodox. I mean. Well, no, but the same thing's happening. So it's the Pope and the church leadership that's kind of giving people what their their stuff is, but it's through their authority. Uh, so you got to imagine the Pope and the emperors being replaced by dogma and tradition. Um, but people are not independently coming to these realizations. And we'll get to that in a moment through science, actually. Uh, really, really fascinating. Um, the other thing here is timeless faith. So the belief that what's written in the Bible has meant the same thing for all people for all time. All right? And that, I mean, very much a belief. You, you know, I've had conversations where I tell people that, you know, what hell, meant, um, what hell meant in the time of Jesus is not what we think hell is today. people say no. Element to Jesus, the same thing it means today. Absolutely. And again, it's, that's falling back into that dogma and tradition as, as authoritative. Um, I want to read a quote here with regards to this. Maybe not because I didn't highlight it. That's okay. Um, and then the final thing you see in this, in this uh, paradigm here is Christ and culture and paradox, uh, which is a big, um, a big lens that still exists today. Um, and, and in the time of the Reformation, the idea was that uh, within medieval theology, Christ, in, Christ, Christ was above culture. The, the church was really concerned with its own power. As long as people venerated the saints, as long as they said the Hail Mary, as long as they confessed, like whatever else they did was fine. You know, Luther brings in this critique to that that, that no, how a person lives in their personal life also bears witness, and so we need to make sure that people are are living living this out in their personal lives too. And, you know, Luther wrote the Small Catechism, the Large Catechism, um, and, and so what Luther introduced was that Christ and culture is in paradox. Uh, you know, for some of you that know, Luther was tortured by the idea of his own sin and that he was going to hell and there was nothing that he could do about it until he came to this idea of grace through faith, um, which which liberated him from that sinfulness. But it didn't change the fact that for Luther, culture the culture was sinful, was inherently sinful, and it needed to be redeemed, and that's what Jesus does. And so, so Christ and culture are in paradox through this frame. Uh, now, I've got a little box underneath here that... This is more to describe um, who maintains this framework today, right? So this is not about the Protestants in the time of Luther. Today in this country, we see this through fundamentalists, American evangelicals, and the new religious right. Um, And so when you look at at, at dogma and tradition through uh, kind of current Christians today, we see a, a, a doctrine of hell, a doctrine of sin, a doctrine of justification, and those things are authoritative. You see the Bible being interpreted as this timeless thing. It's always meant this, that we're not not rediscovering anything here. Um, And and so so the orthodox conservative paradigm is still very present with us today in in many, many, many big ways. It's just not through um, mainline Protestants, I guess I would say, which kind of is what we think of when we talk about Luther. So moving on to the, the liberal uh, what Dorothy Soleil calls liberal, and it's important to note that liberal here is not meant to equate to the liberal conservative labels today. I, I, I probably should have said that already, but I just don't want anyone to hear that and become triggered, um, because liberal and conservative has been used as these divisive labels today, and she's, she's talking about what's more known as liberal theology, so I, I just – please don't confuse the two. Uh, there is some overlap, but they're definitely not the same thing. Um, and so liberal theology, again, comes out as a critique to the orthodox conservative paradigm, right? And so the first thing that it critiques is that science was being persecuted. We think of uh, Copernicus, Galileo, uh, these scientific people who started to discover how the world works, where we come from, and and what they're discovering does not match up with what the Bible is saying. And so uh, uh, Christian leaders started fighting against these kinds of revelations. So within the liberal paradigm, really the thing that ushers it in, and and Luther's actually credited for ushering in the Enlightenment. Um, So Luther does have a part to play in this. But the validity of science becomes the hallmark And science as revelation, as opposed to the Bible as revelation, becomes a big deal. We don't need to go to the Bible anymore to discover where species came from, to discover how the world was created, how the universe was started. Um, Chris,
2: where would you, sort of on the timeline, put that, when that started to?
0: So Luther's really credited for ending the medieval period Starting the rational, but it does things go slower in this time, so this is kind of when um, uh, rationality comes part like six, like 17th, 18th century, and mo- just mostly
2: in Europe, right? Like, just- yeah,
0: yeah, okay. yeah, nowhere. One well, then moves over to America right. and through colonization, right? Goes right, to- right. Yeah, uh, and colonization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask a question? Yeah. of this critique works out. So thank you. Yeah. Maybe like the
1: historical idea is that um, so the medieval Catholic church science kind of, they started saying, like, God is also in nature, and things like that. So we keep going. um. So it wasn't that, I'm
2: sorry, it's going on. It wasn't that, I mean, was it illegal to explore on your own before this happened, or was it just that it became the catalyst for others to think on their
0: own? So in a sense, it was illegal. So about 100 years before Luther, another guy, Johann Huss tried to start a reformation. He was burned at the stake. Uh, Galileo completely recanted everything that he said because the church said you better recant or we're going to excommunicate you and you know so yeah it was illegal Um, what happens with Martin Luther though I mean there's so many things that come together to create the the perfect environment for the Protestant Reformation one of those things is that a lot of these nation states did not want to be under the authority of the emperor and the pope anymore they wanted to be independent so Martin Luther is also credited for sphere that allows for nation states with their own polities. Um, and so when Martin Luther's writing this stuff, all these German princes, they're behind him. They're like, yeah, no, dude, we'll protect you. Write this stuff. Screw the Catholics. Like, we got your back. And when he gets excommunicated at the Diet of Worms, uh, the German princes hide him in Wurtburg, where he does all of this work. So, and, and that's not because they're like, oh my god, this is so spiritual and truthful. We need to do this. It was like, no, we want, you know, we got a, an ulterior motive here. Um, and so as these independent nation states tar- start to formulate, they do let their thinkers go out and think and write and create and yada, yada, yada. Right. Yeah.
2: The significance of education
0: is liberative for the orthodox conservative paradigm. And the orthodox conservative paradigm was liberative uh, for the medieval paradigm. Um, so in the liberal paradigm, we've already talked about this, this is when historical criticism comes out as a good thing to start to say, maybe we should try to read the Bible in the context in which it was written. Um, and that's a, that becomes a critique of the idea that the Bible is completely revelatory, it was inspired by God, and it means the same thing throughout time. Um, and, and people started to look and say, well, you know, maybe women as property is not the best idea. Maybe that was a value in the time of Jesus, but that's not a value we should espouse to today. Um, and so the problem with historical criticism, however, and this is uh, Doroth- what Dorothy Soleil is saying, is that historical criticism starts to isolate parts of the Bible. It takes chunks of the Bible and says, well, this meant this in this time. However, it isolates it, it objectifies it, and and those pieces no longer have a say on the culture. It almost becomes like a scientist looking at um, unrelated objective evidence that has no bearing on life anymore, right? Um, You think of paleontologists who discover dinosaurs. Dinosaurs don't live today. So a paleontologist looking at a fossil of a dinosaur is fascinating, it's interesting, but it has no impact on our lives. And that's what the historical criticism starts to do with the Bible. It starts to remove its emphasis on human beings' lives. Um, This also starts to happen through the lens of white male heteronormative. So white straight men are the ones who are in control of. They're in control of the educational ahas that we have. Women are not making these discoveries. People in oppressed communities are not making these discoveries. It's white, straight men who are making these discoveries. And and while they're revelatory and amazing, they're also feeding the interpretations of them. It's coming through their lenses. When you look at um, the constitution of this country, right? The constitution of this country was created not by Christians, but by philosophers, by people from this paradigm, people, uh, Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes, um, and and the people that that were inspired by this, uh, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, all white straight men. And so they're they're also bringing their own lens into all of this stuff. Uh, And and it's not until later that we kind of realize what that
2: that's been happening, Jonah Farr, I mean, they did have ideas, but they weren't able to speak, they had to act like men, or tell men. So I heard you say that they didn't, that only the ideas of men had relevance.
0: I didn't, okay, so I, no, I did not mean okay. relevance.
2: And then also, I, I disagree that paleontology doesn't have impact on well, that's a digression, so I will okay. I will stop you on that one. <laughs> okay. I was just trying to come
0: up with an example on the spot okay. of okay. you know sometimes how science can isolate and objectify something uh, as opposed to looking at it subjectively. But yeah, maybe after. Yes, after. Or last week, I didn't even open my mouth. This week, I did. You know, <laughs> you're just coming yeah, in. You're so making sorry. up. That's okay though. And <laughs> this is this is dialogue centered. I want to hear your voices. Um, the other thing that that happens with this liberal paradigm is we start to see a unity of culture and Christianity or unity of, of culture and church. Um, it's not it's not in paradox. or bumping heads anymore. It's it's now starting to be adopted. One of the best historical examples you can see is slavery, right? Slavery was something that was fully adopted and justified by Christians um, as the slave trade starts to open up. And the Bible has enough in it, even though it condones slavery in some ways, there's enough in it where it says, masters, be good to your slaves, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that should have come out against um, how slaves were being treated. But the Bible also has a ton of liberation. I mean, the whole Exodus story is the liberation of slaves. Revelation is a book about liberation from this oppressive empire. Um, And and so – Christianity had to do a lot of gymnastics to justify slavery in this country. Sports is another one. How many times do you see someone point up to God when they touch home plate or when they score a touchdown or, you know, make the sign of the cross? Um, consumerism, right? The, the vast inequality and hoarding of wealth that we have in this country has all been adopted by the most present forms of Christianity that, that have said, like prosperity gospel, this is a sign of God's blessing in your life, where God wants you to have this kind of a life. Um, so it, it, I'm sure there's a lot more there but just some examples of how Christ and culture had become unified so the cry, that Christianity or the church no longer had a say in what was going on in the culture because they had become so um, and then another play on that one that comes out from this, and this is probably the biggest deal, and that is the separation of church and state. Um, church was relegated to the individual and private realm. The things that church had to say was about how, what people did in their personal lives, their own personal morality, their own individual morality, and church stayed out of the socio-economic matters which had been relegated to science, uh, economics, uh, politics, Um, they separated from each other. And so again, you have to look at separation of church and state as this critique of the orthodox conservative paradigm where um, leaders had become, uh, 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 religious leaders had become leaders of the state as well and started to exact certain uh, religious elements into that state that became oppressive for a lot of people so the separation of church and state became a critique of that it liberated itself from that which is a positive thing but in doing so it removed its voice from what was happening in the culture um, which we'll see how that works out in a moment and 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 we really see the liberal at least with christianity the liberal paradigm play out within mainstream uh, christianity in this country but in many ways, we see this paradigm with culture in general. This does not have to be relegated only to the church. This is very much a product of society as a whole in Northwestern Hemisphere societies, not Eastern, not uh, Latin American, South African, African, etc. Um, but I, I, I hope you can see how this is relevant for all, all cultures, kind of in our society, right? And then finally, and this is the one that I imagine is probably very foreign for all of us, is the radical liberal paradigm, okay? Which, before I go, I wanted to read a quote from page 16 on the separation of church and state because she says it way better than I do. Official Protestantism, which we have to see as a form, and this is, this is the triggering part, which I'm glad she calls it this, Official Protestantism, which we have to see as a form of bourgeois religion, has withdrawn into the moral and transcendent aspects of Christian faith. It has silenced its social and economic demands for the whole of human life and its society. The church, in its bourgeois Protestant form, adapted itself to the demands of modernity, the enlightenment, and science. But in the process of adaption, lost its critical and prophetic voice because it recognized a division into two worlds, a realm of economics and politics and a private realm, with religious matters falling into the latter. Both realms had a specific autonomous identity. Together, they represented -represented the historical reality of the bourgeois era. But this pre-stabilized harmony was deceptive. It did not do anything for the human rights of racial minorities, like the Jews in Europe or the blacks in the USA. The promised equality was only the equality of white men. The basic view of liberal theology has done nothing for the poor. The separation of church and state has not functioned either in a positive way for the landless peasants or for the industrial proletariat, bringing emancipation, or even in a conservative way, simply by protecting. And that completely ignores the marginalized masses which now live in the third world. And really what she's saying there is that Christianity has become something that causes us to only be concerned with ourselves, our salvation, our souls, and has no bearing on what's happening to what Jesus would call the least of these in our society and in our world. And then so the the, the radical Liberation paradigm. And she starts off and just says, this is an entire change of perspective. And you have to realize that. This is going to be completely foreign to your perspective. Okay? What she says is that you are aligning yourself in collaboration with the work, with God's work of liberation. Christianity is a force for liberation. And she has this quote on page 28. Alongside this, for about 20 years, there has been a theology which is not done by people who are white, relatively well-to-do, and almost exclusively male, the theology of liberation. It consists in collaboration with God's work of liberation. The theology of liberation represents a change in perspective. It comes into being among the poor in South African townships In the refugee camps of El Salvador, among the textile workers of Sri Lanka, it comes into being among those who are oppressed on account of their race, their sex, and or their class situation. I would add to that their gender identity as well, or their sexual orientation. Um, She also says on page 19... (coughs) Liberation theology, too, is oriented on the one word of God, on Jesus Christ, but it does not leave this word without a context, standing above time, or related to individual souls in their depths. For liberation theology, the one word of God is the messianic praxis of Jesus and his followers. In liberation theology, the principle is that the poor are the teachers, and so we learn most today from the poor and through the poor not technology, not knowledge, but faith and hope. By poor, we understand the victims of history. So she uses poor not just to talk about economic poverty, but the victims of history. And she gives some examples in her time of, of who that that is. It's the the people in South Africa, which Nelson Mandela and Des, Mandela and Desmond Tutu were part of. She talks about. Uh, the people in El Salvador, liberation theology construct, Gustavo Gutierrez, Oscar, Oscar Romero, um, the textile workers of Sri Lanka, which Taylor and I couldn't think of a leader in this area, but um, definitely believe her. And it comes into being amongst all those who are oppressed on account of their race, their sex, or their class situation. Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, people who all operated within this liberal paradigm. Um, and it's contextual. So... When you look at your sheet and you see contextuality is right next to the historical criticism, um, this looks at the context that historical criticism tries to point us to, to say, look, Jesus is talking about oppressed people in his time. Jesus was one of those oppressed people in his time. But it doesn't just stop at this objective isolationist part. It says if we're going to say Jesus was the oppressed in his time, we as Christians have to see Christ in the oppressed in our time. And we have to do the work of liberation in our time. Uh, The final thing here is that it introduces this this shift of Christ against culture, uh, or Christ and culture in paradox. There there are definitely some similarities between the radical paradigm and the orthodox conservative paradigm. Um, One of them is that Christ and culture is in paradox in both of those. However, in the conservative Orthodox paradigm. Christ is against culture, but Christ is being represented by the powerful in this power in this paradigm. It's the church leaders, the people who have interpreted the Bible and created this dogma and tradition. In the radical liberal paradigm, um, Christ and culture is in paradox because culture has become oppressive towards uh, uh, people of color, women, LGBTQ. So culture is, again, committing sin, and Christians, the church, should have a say in what's happening in that culture. It should not be relegating itself to personal individualization. It should be having a voice in saying that what is happening in this country with people of color, with women, with LGBTQ people, with with wealth inequality, with what's happening in third world countries... With um, America's foreign policy against a lot of developing nations, the church should have a very powerful voice in all of this stuff instead of just being relegated to the private. Um, So that, that paradox comes back, but it's through a very different praxis, which is powerful. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that part up especially is because today I hear this constantly from people that... The separation of church and state is a good thing, which ultimately it is, especially as a critique against that orthodox conservative um, power model. Uh, but the other one is that I'm not I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, right? How many of us have either said that or heard this? I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. There's a part in this country that still holds on to this fear of Christians taking over leadership positions and, and, and putting in oppressive policies towards people. And so we are afraid that the church can't have any kind of an institutional structure because it will always be oppressive. However, people of color, black people, Latin American people, they don't feel this way about their church. If you go to, uh, this happened in Southside Chicago all the time, um, black Baptist churches in Southside Chicago where I lived, They would constantly invite uh, local politicians into their church to speak to their people, to tell them what they're going to do to their people, but then to call them out and say, these are what our needs are, this is the oppression we're experiencing, what are you going to do about it? And they would hold them accountable. I think if I ever invited a, a local politician to come and talk during a church service, I'd be fired the next day, without question. I would be fired. And so there is this part of needing to realize that church as institution, when it comes from this radical liberal paradigm, can be one of the most powerful, meaningful voices in our society. And black people have been doing this, black people have been doing this, queer people have been doing this, women have been doing this. It's time for the rest of mainstream society to adopt this radical paradigm and start doing this too. And to realize that separation of church and state has its value and there's ways that it should stay that way but the church as institution needs to find its voice again and enter its voice back into society back into culture uh, as witness for the oppressed the Christ, is that
2: only for Jesus though is that I mean does that does she in this radical thought embrace other religions Yeah, because that's an important Absolutely. thing I feel like okay. yeah so
0: she would very much talk about one off the top of my head is going to be Gandhi. Right. She okay. Very much talk about that.
3: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so. it seems like that's exactly what the evangelical church
0: did with Donald Trump. But again, there's so there's two lenses here. There's one through the lens of the powerful. I and, agree. And so that's the main difference.
3: I agree. It's very different. Yeah. And I'm saying it's the same sort of direct participation of the church in politics in power and. I think that it's reasonable to worry about that. I fully agree reason. with you. Not enough reason to not... To not. So, you know, know. I just want to yeah, I don't yeah. Think, that I think it has to happen. Yeah. I know what the black churches do, but I think that, you know, for instance, uh, that means that as a church, um, you may have to give up your property tax exemption. You may have to give up your charitable organization exemption if you're actually going to become an active I um, mean, you, you, might might, or, you might say that and possibly
0: scare some people, and if that's ultimately what needs to happen, this would say that you always should take the side of, of, of justice of the oppressed, yes. right? However, black churches in this country have been doing this for yes. decades and decades and decades and have not lost their their exempt status. That's a good yet. thing. Yeah. I, I just go back and, you know, yeah. anyway. So I mean, the, the, the reality is that this work is being done very successfully in this country already. Um, We just tend to ignore it or take its leaders, adopt it into this frame, create a national holiday for them, and only say the quotes that we like and that agree with us.
2: Would you say that the ecological movement is maybe the indigenous folks who uh, think of the spirit
0: quotes here to be good, but she definitely talks about Native peoples in this country um, quite a bit, actually. And and she does talk about people of different faiths who have been doing this liberation work in, in their faiths as well. I think
3: the other thing I, I
0: would say to be careful
3: about is that um, in many evangelical ch- congregations in this country, they're very close to taking arms if they feel like I think that, that you know, on the other hand, in Latin America, uh, liberation theology and liberation movements actually did become very important around some of the issues that were present in those times, in those places. The liberation movements
0: did. The church worked alongside those movements, but they did not create them. No, they did not. Them. Yeah.
1: Let's have a quick question. Yeah. Uh, just to help me understand a little bit with the separation of church and state Um, so we want the church to be involved in politics but only in the right way does that make sense because obviously there's tons of very outspoken fundamentalist Christians that are involved in politics and I'm like "Mm, would rather you not
0: she doesn't say that specifically that churches need to get involved in politics but that churches need to find their voices as critiques of society or culture um, that it should church sure. Specific example: Chicago, and I guess maybe there was more context needed for the Chicago example. Chicago's broken into aldermen, so there's a lot of them. And each alder, each ald has its own alderman, um, and it's a person from that community who's elected. So it typically, it's a person who represents demographically what that community represents. So for the aldermans in the South Side Chicago is often black people, in West Side Chicago is often Hispanic Latinx people, um, in the north parts of Chicago is often white people, but these black churches were calling their aldermen, um, which is antiquated terms, men and women, uh, who were members of their community into their church to allow them to present what their ideas were, but to try to say, these are what our needs are, this is what we want you to do, etc. cetera. Um, and so it, 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 it definitely keeps in line that connection to the community. It's not, like I wouldn't do that here because, um, there's like a separation between our political representatives here and this actually, like the community.
2: Um, well, um, in this situation, though, would it be something where, like, if there was a group of people from this church that wanted their voices heard of things that they wanted to see in the community, they would go to the representative
0: instead of bringing the representative to the church? No, they bring the representative to the no, but in this, like, here, no, would we go I, to I and think speak so. to somebody? Like, for us, what this would look like for us, um, housing and inequality in this community is is disgusting right now. It is a massive need. Uh, it would be like this church coming together as a church and making a statement as a church that there is an injustice in housing here in this community and uh, we it, it needs to be fixed. Here's how, here's, here's where we align ourselves, here's the solidarity we it's not so much trying to get your person into politics, it's trying to align yourself with uh, with those who are in need, with the least of these, and actually make statements as church about what's going on in culture. That's how I envision it, because I'm not ready to have a politician come in here, and you know, um, but also be a white community, a white church, like that's a very different power dynamic than a, a black church in Southside Chicago. Your hand was up
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I think she, she says uh, like, liberal theology affirms the separation of church and state as a liberating basic principle. And then she kind of says, but this is deceptive. I think she's just saying that it's, <clears throat> it's not it's not this like, we've tried out, we've done everything, now that we have a separation of church and state, it's not like a, she's saying it's not as great as we think it is. It could, it could go either way.
0: Coming from, it's a woman, coming from a woman who grew up in Nazi Germany, she says very explicitly, separation of church and state led to fascism, led to Hitler, because the church had removed its voice from society, from culture, and it basically let Hitler walk right in. It, 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 it allows totalitarianism to take over because it starts focusing only on the private life of a person and not on what's going on in society.
2: And then it's coming from, like, the like example is that, uh, like, Henry VIII came up with his own rules of what he wanted his religion to be so that he could, like, accommodate his, life's that, like, the choices that he was making about his wives. And so then he was making decisions and, like, kind of, since he was a representative of the Anglican Church and the king, that he then was, like, putting that on his people of, like, his
0: beliefs. Not so, I mean, kind of, but Henry also was a big reader of Luther and needed the theological justice. He needed the church on his side. So he, he didn't do this as king saying, here's what the Bible says, I'm going to do this. That's what would have been the medieval model. He came from this this orthodox conservative framework of having this doctrine and, and, and dogma already in place and then saying, hey, I should be able to do this, blah, blah, blah. So somewhat, but no. I think
1: like most recent would be like Jerry Falwell saying, we don't need a pastor, we need a commander in chief and that's how you got trump elected by most of christianity yeah it's like there's a clear separation it's like you don't need someone that is speaking biblical things accurately you just need someone that's a strong leader in there yeah
0: so we're like right at time i have these questions but um i don't want us to go over and uh so I, i really want you to consider these questions in your own time seriously read them and think about them Um, in my experience as a pastor, what I would call a liberal pastor, theologically liberal pastor, I would love to say that I'm part of this liberal, liberation radical paradigm. Um, I'm fully aware that I'm not. I am very much in this liberal camp right here. Um, I, I I would actually probably lose my job if I went fully into the liberal, the the, uh, liberation paradigm. I wouldn't be fired, but enough people would leave my church that that I would risk the future of this church by doing this. Uh, so there's like, worried about moles in here listening. No, not at, all, not at all. Not at all. No. Um, and, and and I mean, for those of you that have heard me speak publicly in town, yes, it's always been from this place of this right. radical liberation paradigm. Um, but there's definitely been backlash in this church, and it would it would. It would be risky for me to do this it's not risky for me to do this by myself with my own voice it's risky for me to try to have this church adopt this paradigm because most of the people here are not ready for it and they would probably go to a different church um and and it would definitely risk the future of this church however you know uh, phyllis tickle who was the one that said reformations happen every 500 years um said that the time for another reformation is now. And all the Lutherans were like, cool, let's go. We're the reformers. But the truth is, it's not going to be the Lutherans who usher in the next reformation. It's going to be people within this radical liberation paradigm, and they're already doing it. Um, and and, and in, in many ways, that's what's um, fueling this exvangelical uh, movement right now, is, is people have started to see these critiques um, I think you know I think we talked about this that we would actually see American evangelicalism probably right here between the two um, not wholly over here but definitely not wholly over here either uh, and, and so I th- it, you know I, I think what we're seeing a lot in this country is because people are realizing that, that this is the most authentic expression of Christianity and, and people definitely want to be a part of it but there's a ton of risk in doing From family, from friends, from uh, different places of power in in your community, etc. So please take some time to go through these and think about it. Um, This is just the beginning of of uh, our our talk on liberation. So next Sunday, we're going to be talking about Cornel West's um, essay, uh, "Crisis of Christian Identity in America." Um, two of you I know have read that already so it'll be a little bit of a review for you but for the rest of you it's a 30 page uh, essay that's really good um, and we're going to kind of just bring out it's, it's a two paradigm look at, at Christianity as opposed to three but still really good stuff so this is not the end of the liberation series it's just the beginning a lot more for you to think about and chew on um, and if you have more questions we can bring those back next week. I no, would like to say I think that Journey is a liberation
3: of oneself as well as one's locals. And that they're, they're connected. Where can then we find ourselves connected to one another? And that, in that liberation of our viewpoint of what's going on, we liberate ourselves too.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and for me especially, and this is kind of my thing, is the, the community of it all. Like, so radical liberation paradigm is entirely community-centered. This is not done by one person. This is done by the community. Every group that you see that incorporates this paradigm, the black church, Latinx church, uh, queer community, it's all done in community. It's not one individual. The liberal paradigm is very individualistic. And and again, not individuality but individualism, that this is really meant for uh, a singular person by themselves can, can be a part of this, adopt it, live it out. This the radical liber- liberation needs community. Your prison isn't walking through this world all alone, huh? Your prison is walking
3: through this world
2: all alone. Yeah, and we need community. Can you post the essay
3: in our group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got a PDF of it, so I. Can